Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. News doesn't stop happening on Fridays. With News Talk Radio at its weekend best, The Roy Green Show delivers on the Chorus Radio Network. Since uh, July 27th, 2013, we've been talking about, listening to, thinking about the uh, situation that happened on the Toronto streetcar where Officer James Forcillo of the Toronto Police Service uh, shot and killed. I don't know if I have to say allegedly, um, because the case is with the jury now. The jury will decide if it's second-degree murder or not and other charges that were laid and they're considering but we've been talking about and thinking about and listening about and talking uh, to what is going on and what the reality of this could be and the implications going forward. Uh, if Farcillo is, in fact, convicted of murder, it would be the first time that a Toronto police officer on active duty would have been convicted of a capital offence. Scott Newark is a former Crown attorney in Alberta. He's the past executive director of the Canadian Police Association, was also a senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety and is a regular contributor to this program, and I'm very grateful that he is. Scott, uh, as a Crown Attorney, former Crown Attorney, as you looked at this case and as it developed, and it's with the jury now, two questions. What interests you most? And secondly, uh, would you have expected the jury to be back by now? Well, first thing, uh, Roy, when you hesitated for a second and said that... uh you know, the officer had killed this guy. Actually, that is not in dispute. He did kill the guy. The point is, though, that there's a difference between killing someone and murdering them. And that's what this, this trial is actually going on uh, about right now. Um, there are a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, uh, it's not even just that there are difficult issues there. Um, essentially, I should have added, Scott, I should have added to that was because the judge also called the jury back yeah. as they were about to begin their second day of deliberation and yeah, said, let me make some usual. corrections to my initial instructions to you. Yeah, that's not usual. Um, the, the bottom line about this, though, is that, as is the case in, uh, particularly in jury cases, what is uh, critically important is that the, what the actual evidence is that the jury has heard on per- the, the points that will be specifically relevant. And it's not about whether what... Constable Priscilla did actually kill the guy. That's they know that that was the case. In essence, it's whether he is or was justified in what he was doing under two legal defenses that are available to him. One is a, 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 a police officer under Section 25 of the uh, Criminal Code, and one is this for a general citizen under Section 34, which is essentially self-defense. Is the bottom line of what it comes down to, and. The key questions for the jury will be about the nature of the threat that the officer um, actually faced. Okay, and that's what I mean about how they're going to have to determine that on the evidence. And that's why I, th- I think there's some rather odd uh, decisions made by the judge in this case in terms of what evidence was not ruled admissible. But that's the first part of it. And then they have to decide, 
based on that, whether what the officer did was reasonable in all of the circumstances. That's what they're going through right now. Let me just go through a couple of the items that uh, that we're talking about here. And, well, and it begins and it begins with the the, the, the um, second degree murder charge and attempted murder charge. Bizarre. There's an assault charge, all against a police officer with a history of pulling out his firearm far more frequently than the vast majority of his fellow Toronto officers over the three years on the force. Sammy Yatim, I just want to go through some of this for some of our listeners. Sammy Yatim had a switchblade on the streetcar. He, according to testimony, hugely frightened a young woman as he slashed at her. The passengers ran. Police were called. And from there on is what the trial is about. Uh, Officer Forsillo shouted orders to drop the knife and not move. And when Sammy Yatim didn't drop the knife and took one and a half steps forward to where he'd been standing before, Forsillo fired three shots. And then Sammy Yatim on the floor of the streetcar According to Forsillo's testimony, he raised himself to a 45-degree angle. That was proven not to be the case by video evidence. And Officer Forsillo said he was mistaken then about the 45-degree angle, but still felt Sammy Yatim was about to lunge at him and felt he was in direct danger and others around him were in danger, and so he fired six more shots. Eight of the nine total struck Sammy Yatim, and he died. And so now the question the jury faces is, was this a justified police shooting, or was it murder or attempted murder? And again, Scott, the judge may have muddied the waters, did for me as, as an observer, when he called the jury back into the courtroom as they were about to begin their second day of deliberation and said he wanted to correct and clarify some of the instructions he'd sent the jury to deliberate on initially. Well, even your description points out the uh, the importance and the detail. Uh, he, he wasn't just sitting at the back of the streetcar and pulled a knife. He also took his zipper down and pulled his penis out, and he was thrusting the knife and slashing the knife at one of the uh, the women at the uh, the back of the uh, the streetcar and he was screaming at them as he walked in the streetcar again penis in hand okay with his knife which is a prohibited weapon by the way that people sometimes forget to point out uh and everybody uh, screaming and i watched the video everybody uh, screaming flees off the uh, the streetcar there's even a confrontation seemingly friendly at first and then a concentration with a confrontation with the uh uh, the streetcar driver, uh, and the perception is that, yes, he had moved after being told directly to stay where you are, don't come forward, drop the knife, that he took a step towards the officer. The officer described, and these guys received training in all of this stuff as well, too, as to what to look for, what he perceived to be the, the, the threat that this guy had decided that he was coming at him. So that's when the first shots were fired. His then perception is that the guy was obviously still alive, was starting to get up, had the knife in his hand, and so fired again. You've also got to factor into all of this the training that officers receive in relation to these kinds of circumstances. And look, I think all of us realize this isn't something perfect. It isn't science in the sense of, you know, uh, exactly, you know, what happens in every circumstance. You can't predict everything. And that's what, what strikes me about this as well, too. Another just observation generally that I certainly hope the lawyer for the officer got across is that there's one major difference here as well, too. Um, that officer that morning did not get up and just say, you know what, I think I'm going to shoot somebody today. I think I'm going to kill somebody today. As compared to, you know, the guy that uh, had the knife, Mr. Yatim, who decided that day his own conscious decision that he was going to get up and, you know, arm himself with a knife and do what he did. Scott. So the officer's got to decide about what it yeah. is that he was actually facing, and the jury's got to decide whether that's accurate, and then what he did in that context. What? Where does it come into play that Officer Fursillo has a had a history of pulling his firearm 
far more frequently than his fellow officers on the Toronto Police Force. Yeah, he also never had... And then he was the only one who fired. He was the only officer who fired. That, yeah, that, he, would, he had never, never discharged the firearm in any of the circumstances you're talking about. No, I, I know, but it's been brought into the overall discussion, and there were, there was a, um, a witness who suggested, a police officer who suggested, I believe, that he there could, there could have been other things done other than to shoot at Sami Yatim. Yeah, so this is this, boy, is, this that, is what the jury's uh, dealing with, right? Part of it. Uh, that was an, an expert uh, witness brought in by the Crown, who was a um, a trainer, okay, in uh, use of force. Mm-hmm. And as I say, the, you know, our officers all across the country get specialized training, but the Crown decided to bring in an expert from the United States. Hold on, we're going to come back to you. All have right. to take a break. We'll come back. This is all information that the jury is um, deciding on, and perhaps they will decide before the end of this program. We're talking to Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. We'll come back on The Green Show. Stay with us. From hard news to pop culture, he's got you covered. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Roy Green Show. Webpage is RoyGreenShow.com. Listen back anytime to anything you choose in the podcasts, and you can download as well. Scott Newark is with me, former Crown Attorney and former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. We're talking about the James Forcillo murder trial. So as we're talking, Scott, it brings me to what you were saying and what I was asking, the things I was saying, brings me to the question. I want to have some time to talk to my callers about this. Should police in 2016, and we know what's been going on, particularly in the United States, should police be exempt from facing criminal charges while answering a call or dealing with an active case unless it can be demonstrably proven the police have with intent broken the law? And that brings me full circle to something you told us about initially, and that's the FIDO practice in the U.S. Does yeah. any of that make sense? I've heard it. I've heard it talked about in California, in Los Angeles County. A deputy sheriff whose car drifted into the cycling lane, hit and instantly killed a former Napster music file sharing site executive. The officer had been texting a fellow officer while driving, and he was deemed to only be doing what was necessary, and that was to respond quickly to a fellow officer's request for information. The district attorney said, had it been a civilian texting who drifted his or her vehicle into the cycling lane, criminal charges would have been filed, but not against the officer. Uh, In short, no, I don't agree. Uh, I don't think we need to go that far with that kind of a blanket approach. The sections that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our interview, wherein there are special provisions given to police officers who are doing their duty, and there's a recognition that they may have to use force in certain circumstances, and all of the other uh, factual differentiations that are going to be made, I don't think we need that, that level of special exemption. But I do want to, uh, I mean, I, I take your point about this, because this, this has, I'm afraid... Well, you told us about the FIDO to... policy that police are informally in putting in place. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the point, is that there are disciplinary procedures, and you can fire people, and you can do all of that stuff. But we've gone, let's face it, well beyond that. This guy is charged with murder. Right. Uh, At the very least, if there was a charge, I don't understand why they wouldn't have charged him with criminal negligence causing death. This is the one in California. No, I mean the one with Constable Frasillo. If you were going to do it, the actual charges themselves, I mean, think about that. It's the same guy, and he's charged with murdering him and attempting to murder him? Well, 
That's unusual. Don't but you what, get the what, feel here, Roy, that there's a bit of armchair quarterbacking going on? So now, but the jury has the case. Yeah. Right. They have been told what to consider twice. And then what not to consider that they were considering based on what they were told to consider. Yes. Right. So is an appeal inevitable? Who knows, Roy? Who knows? I, some of the, the the one thing that really struck me, I was doing some some reading about this. One of the judge's rulings was, and he's approaching this from the premise that what this guy yet team did before is irrelevant, and the jury shouldn't hear evidence of it because that they should only be considering what Constable Fursillo was encountering. And I think um, I think the judge has made a mistake with respect if, if that is in fact accurate. Because while his previous evidence may not be determinative of the threat that he posed, I think it is almost certainly relevant. And it specifically came up because the judge uh, uh, excluded evidence. The defense wanted to bring evidence of this guy's mental state, where apparently he'd been on email or social media, I'm not sure exactly what, that showed that he was potentially suicidal. And I must admit, when I first heard the circumstance of this, I thought this was going to be another instance of what's known as suicide by cop, where people put themselves in circumstances that they get killed. And the judge ruled would not allow the jury to hear that evidence. Isn't the argument that the police officer isn't aware of anything that happened before the police officer arrived on the scene? The officer dealing with only what he or she sees yeah, when they arrive. Yeah, but what he or she sees is this guy standing there with a knife who has just done that, which is relevant to the potential threat that he actually poses. That's the point. Okay? He wasn't sitting back there blow-drying his hair, was he? He had so you... just slashed his knife at people with his penis in his head. Those are irrational, violent actions. Okay, and that would is you relevant have... to the officer determining. So if you were the Crown Attorney in this case, how would you have proceeded? I, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm not normally hesitant to express my opinion. That's the I first time I've heard you, know. you say I, I don't know. Sorry. But I've I got to tell you, based on what I have seen, um, these, these particular charges for sure would not, we would not have proceeded with this. Now, let's be fair to the Crown. These charges were actually recommended and directly laid by the Special Investigations Unit, which we have specially set up to do this kind of oversight. So with the SIU having recommended the charges, I think the Crown probably had very little choice but to proceed. But at the same time, you disagree with any notion that police should be assured that in the commission of their duty, they can be comfortable knowing they will not be criminally charged for any act they commit unless it can be demonstrably proven they intended to commit a criminal act. Well, you're putting on the... You're putting on a rider at the end of that. The bottom line is... No, no, I've said that all along. I've said that all along. I've said that all along. The the question is, because I've heard this asked, should police, because the FIDO incidents we've heard about, should police be assured they will not be charged criminally for things they do while they're on duty unless it can be uh, demonstrably proven they intended to commit a criminal act, like the South Carolina shooting of the African-American who was shot eight times in the back and then the cop dropped the gun beside him? The notion of uh, FIDO, which stands, by the way, folks, for uh, forget it, drive on, only the first verb is not actually forget, but Got it. leave it there. Um, that is more about the fact of police officers being subject to co- disciplinary complaints because somebody said, you know, they were rude to them or they only stopped them because of their race or anything else like that. It's not all the way to somebody committing a criminal act. And how rare that, and i got to tell you, how that is, that is so rare that it actually takes place. 
that I don't think that special kind of a general exemption is required. Uh, I'm I'm more concerned about what I think is this, as I say, the uh, the armchair quarterbacking. And I got to tell you, I, I I even have some a bit of personal experience from my days as a prosecutor, where I was involved in a couple of situations. And trust me, uh, it's you know uh, it's it's a little dif- different when you're the one that's actually out on the scene and you're responding to something than you know three months later with somebody sitting in the room going, well, perhaps they should have done this. And I guess this supposed which kind of brings us back to the question. I suppose this expert from the United States even said, I think, things like, oh, he could have thrown a bottle of water at him, you know, or a tennis ball or something. Like, what is that? All right. So, Scott, you have issues with all of this, clearly. I do. And do you think a, an appeal is, regardless of how the jury decides, an appeal is almost inevitable? The, 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 I think if there's a conviction, the answer to that is yes. Um, the, the difficulty about it is with a with a jury, Roy, is that you don't know the basis on which the jury made its decisions, because that's never published. What you know is what the directions, the rulings of the judge were in terms of the evidence and the right. directions that the judge gave to the jury. Okay. And as I say, from what I've seen, some of that's already, I think, uh, rather questionable. Okay, let me ask you one more question quickly. This This idea of the judge calling the jury back, going into day two of deliberation, and saying, I, I want to correct what I, what I sent you uh, into deliberation with. The very unusual impact on the jury, what would you say? If you're the Crown Attorney for this case, and the judge does that, what do you think is going to happen? What, what do, you, do you have concerns? Well, I, do, I don't uh, even know the specifics of what it was that he corrected, but you're correct that that is relatively rare. Judges are supposed to get it right in the first place. Uh, would, would, you, would you be concerned as you're sitting at the Crown's table? Well, it, it depends. Whoever asked for the correction, right? Yeah. That's the real point. Okay. Somebody, however, obviously, if, if part of what is ultimately the basis for an appeal is that the judge's directions to the jury were flawed, the fact that he had to call them back in and, uh, you know, re-instruct them obviously confirms that. Well, there'll be lots reported on, I'm sure, in the uh, yes. By the, the way, in the days and weeks to come, months. Prediction? Not guilty. Not guilty, you say? Yes, sir. Scott, always good talking to you. You're, you're never short on opinions, my friend. You as well. Well, been known to happen. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, and as I said, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Later on in the show, we'll talk to David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, also a former Crown Attorney, about the same case. And if the jury does bring down the verdict, we'll talk about that verdict before the end of this program. I want to ask you the question, because I've, I've seen it for some time. I've seen it in U.S. media. I've seen it on social media. I've seen it in emails to me periodically. And the question is, because of police involvement and charges against police for actions they've taken while on duty, and the stories we've heard, and Scott says it happens fairly infrequently, I hope so, but we've seen that police have said, forget it, also, Scott said it's not, don't say forget it, forget it, drive on, because they don't want to get involved in a situation that could end up seeing them disciplined or charged, so they just ignore it. Can't have that happen with a police department or police force. Police are there to enforce the law. So the question that is raised is this. Should police officers be exempt from facing criminal charges while they answer a call or they deal with an active case? 888-225-8255. If you're in the Toronto area, it's uh, 416-870-6400. 888 
8255 is my number. When police, and if, I'd like to hear from some cops on this too. If a police officer is on duty, should because we don't know what it's like to be a cop and face a situation, do we? I, I never have. Imagine unless you're a police officer, you haven't either. Should police officers be exempt from facing criminal charges um, based on what they do when they're answering a call or dealing with an active case unless it can be demonstrably proven that they intended to commit a criminal act? We'll come back and hear what you have to say after this.